0: John chapter 6, verses 35 to 59, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. All the Father gives to me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out, for I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I'm the bread that came down from heaven. They said, Is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I've come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who's heard and learned from the father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the father, except He who is from God, he has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that comes down from heaven. You have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. Let's pray. Father, we are hungry and sinful, and our bodies are already dying. Give us true food, we pray, so that enjoying your grace, we can live forever. Amen. Once upon a time, there were three bears who lived together in a house in the woods. And while they're out with their three bowls of porridge cooling on the table, a little girl with golden curls found her way into their home. And you think you know how her story goes, don't you? But I'm afraid to tell you, friends, the true story is a far sorrier tale. Because in reality, sweet little Goldilocks was a very foolish girl. She'd gotten herself so deep and lost in the woods that she was desperate enough to break into the house of three ferocious bears and steal their food. And yet when she found those bowls waiting for her on the table, she turned her nose up at two of them. Now, let me tell you, Daddy Bears was not too hot Mummy Bear's was not too cold. That would be plainly absurd, wouldn't it? It's all cooked together in the same big pot. No, the truth is, it was all just right. It was just what she needed to keep her alive long enough to make it home. In fact, it was all delicious because, as everyone knows, bears love honey. They can't resist a bit of it in their porridge. But she was a very picky little girl. The problem wasn't the porridge. The problem was her. So two of those three bowls went in the bin, and that, my friends, was how hungry little Goldilocks met her end. I warned you, it's a sorry tale, but something far more sad would be sitting in church this morning and being just as picky as Goldilocks. We have pages open in front of us, full of truth that is sweeter than honey. But I wonder, can you taste it? All around us, there is the fragrance of life, the aroma of Christ. But I wonder, can you smell it? Over there, there is a table set with food on it that is more precious than you could buy with all the money in the world. But I wonder Can you see it? Or do you see little little cubes of gluten-free bread and sickly sweet grape juice? What if we are here in the middle of a glorious feast, but all we can see is grim, gray, boiled vegetables? I rather suspect that is how it is when the vast majority of the people we know and love walk into a living church Well, John has told us over chapter 6 of his gospel that God the Father has put food on the table that is able to feed our souls for all eternity. The most costly and precious meal that has ever been prepared. And yet today, all we see is people sticking their noses up at it. We've got two parallel halves to this passage, each beginning with Jesus crying out again, I am the bread of life, the bread that has come down from heaven. And yet in the first half, people reject that bread because it is far too plain. If they want food for their souls, it has to be the fanciest food there is, not some ordinary carpenter's son whose parents live down the road. And then in the second half, they reject that same bread for the opposite reason. It is far too strange. Eat his flesh and drink his blood. What mad talk is this? And so they are willing to starve themselves to death when the very food that would make their dying souls sing for joy is right there, offering himself as a feast. You can lead a beggar to bread but you can't make him eat. And we realize yet again that John is showing us we are the beggars, the picky eaters who would turn our noses up at the sweetest food in creation, unless God the Father in his loving kindness draws us by the heart. So today he'll teach us what it means to feed on his son. Last time, John taught us that we must not spend our lives working for food that can't fill our souls. Today, he'll drive home the truth that we must feed on his true bread or everything is lost. And we'll see more of what that means. The phrase that comes again and again in the first half is, come, come to me, he's pleading. And then in the second cycle, it gets more visceral, feed on me. So, first, verses 35 to 47 come to Jesus, because however ordinary he seems, he alone can keep the Father's loved ones. If you remember back to last week, where in the middle of a conversation which is almost ludicrous by verse 35, it's such a beautiful, famous saying of Jesus, but it's spoken in a tone of exasperated love. The context of that saying is a massive crowd who have searched all over Galilee for him and yet they won't actually come to him. They're still asking for bread as if it were an it, a thing, which explains what Jesus says next. You've seen me, but you don't believe. You've seen my power in that miracle. You've seen the blessings I can bring, but you haven't truly seen me that I am not simply the giver, I am the gift. And so Jesus starts to confront a reality now that looms larger and larger as the first half of the book reaches its climax, what seems like the total failure of God's saving plan. John has been gearing us up for this amazing Exodus-style rescue mission, and yet by the end of this chapter, there is a mass desertion Of his disciples, his followers, because these lost tribes of Israel, it turns out, would rather die in the wilderness than eat the bread of heaven. But that doesn't mean, says Jesus, that God's saving purposes for the world are failing. In fact, it turns out that it is through this rejection that Jesus becomes the bread that will give life to the world. So, do you see what he's saying in verse 37? All that the father gives to Jesus will come to him because that's how the father chose to save the world. Jesus has come down from heaven, verse 38, out of a deep, deep commitment to his father's will. And what is that will? That people come to his son to be saved. No one else. We're told it twice, aren't we? First a negative, then positive. The Father's will, verse 39, is that I should lose nothing of all that he's given me, but see them safe to the resurrection. And then the Father's will, verse 40, is that everyone who looks on me and believes should have eternal life, and I will see him safe all the way to the resurrection, So even as the crowds are getting ready to desert, what a wonderful thing it is that Jesus says, I have come all the way from heaven out of a deep, deep commitment to the eternal security of those God loves. I used to think that verse 37 was saying something about how wonderfully welcoming the Lord Jesus is. Come to me. And I will by no means cast you out because the arms of my kingdom stretch that wide. And that was a great comfort to me as a new believer with a sinful past to hear that Jesus would welcome someone even like me. It's gloriously true. But that verse is an even greater comfort to me now because I've been helped to see that it means something stronger than that. John Carson points out that the verb to cast out is usually something you use for someone that's already in, someone who's already come and found a welcome. Look where Jesus focuses right the way through this section. It's on eternity, isn't it? Food that lasts for eternity. Three times, he says that he will never lose those who are his, but raise them up even after their bodies are long dead lost to the grave. So this is a promise about our eternal security, isn't it? How well does the food Jesus gives you preserve your body and soul to everlasting life? How secure is your future, you who wander and stray and spend half of this life chasing after all the wrong sorts of food, how good a saviour is he? Well, the answer is that your security is as deep as Christ's commitment to his Father. If before all worlds, God the Father gave your soul to his Son in love, then friend, it is unthinkable that he would be so careless with it as to let it slip out of his grip. He alone can keep you forever. So who else would you go to? Now that is big talk, isn't it? Don't miss how big. Jesus himself has said here, I came from heaven to rescue eternal souls. That is the claim that these crowds cannot get on board with. Because verse 42, they know him. They know where he's from. They know that he is flesh and blood just like them. Little Joe Jr. from a home down the road. A king, sure, if he can deliver the goods, we'll take that. But how could someone so ordinary claim to be bred from heaven? And so that dreaded Bible word, verse 41, they grumble against their deliverer. Just like their forefathers grumbled through the exodus. Now, I think John is having a bit of fun here because those of us reading his book, we know a lot more than the people actually in the story, don't we? He's already shown us that there is far, far more to Jesus Christ than some little carpenter's lad from Nazareth. He started his book before time and space when there was nothing but an infinitely glorious eternal God And Jesus was there. And so the crowds reject this Jesus because they think they know all about him. And that is a danger for us too, isn't it? Precisely because he came in such humility, such ordinariness. We can imagine him as someone far less glorious than he truly is. Mundane even, the Jesus our granny talked about. Someone wise, influential maybe, but not someone we need to feed on any more than we feed on crystallized fruit or whatever else grannies eat. He's ordinary. Well, friends, don't make that mistake because what they don't realize is that the very ordinariness of the Jesus they're rejecting is the whole wonderful treasure of the gospel. Yes, this one who came from heaven was boring flesh and blood just like us. And he's about to tell us why. He assumed ordinary flesh and blood so that he could offer that ordinary flesh and blood for the life of the world to save ordinary flesh and blood But to see past that ordinariness, there's only one way. Don't grumble among yourselves, verse 43. There's no answer there among yourselves. Your only hope is that the Father draws you to me. You were promised a day, a great day of hope and change when you would all be taught by God. It's a quote from Isaiah. Well, that day is here. God has come to teach you. And that presents us with a staggering opportunity, does it not? How does God draw us to his son? Well, not by force, not with an army of jihadists or some cosmic fatalistic compulsion. No, he woos us and he wins us. And he does it through his son's own words. He teaches us teaches us that this ordinary-looking man who we looked at so ignorantly, like grim, gray, boiled vegetables, is actually the very bread for our souls. Augustine compares it to the way you draw a sheep towards you by holding out lovely green grass for it to eat. There's a pleasure of the heart, he says, to which the bread of heaven is sweet. You're drawn to what you run to, drawn by loving it, drawn by a cord of the heart. So have you felt its pull? Don't write him off as grim and gray or you will never know the one your heart is crying out for. When I was about 23, a fairly young Christian, I ditched church one Sunday morning with a group of friends because there was a big-name speaker, the famous Ravi Zacharias, coming to town. And so while my slightly boring, faithful pastor was preaching away, we went to listen in the massive convention center, and we all said how wonderful it was, although the truth is it was fairly pretentious, and most of it was over my head. And so that Sunday, there was an ordinary church where Jesus was being preached. And as they heard Jesus speak, they were being taught by God himself, drawn by the creator to his son. And in the same town, there we were, lapping up the words of Mr. Zacharias, a man who we now know taught the talk, but served himself. One of those two groups had the biggest name of all preaching to them that Sunday. And it wasn't us. Jesus says there is no other hope for us, no other way to hear God's voice and learn his truths and see his face, except through the one who has come down from heaven. And so we have to humble ourselves and pray that God draws us to this ordinary son, come to Jesus. And then verses 48 to 59, feed on Jesus. Because however strange it seems, his flesh alone can share the father's life. Now we'll come in a moment to what a deeply strange thing it is that Jesus says here, because I think we do have to recognize it is very shocking (laughs) If you're visiting us today, you've come just as we are opening up the deepest and strangest mystery in the Christian faith. Sometimes we pretend, don't we, that there's nothing at all weird to see here, nothing weird in Christianity. We make our churches look like office buildings. We avoid the old language. We don't clothe our ministers in funny dresses. But there's no getting around this one. According to Jesus, a Christian is someone who lives forever by eating his flesh and drinking his blood. And if we want to take all the rough edges of that claim and explain it away, then we'll find we take the rough edges off the cross itself and what it means to embrace the gospel. It's meant to shock But before we think more deeply about what exactly it means, Jesus gives us a warning that it's possible to think we're eating the bread of life when we aren't actually feeding on him at all. In all sorts of ways, John has been comparing the crowd who followed Jesus after that miraculous feeding to that grumbling wilderness generation. And so in verse 49, he's not simply giving them a history lesson, he's giving them a warning Your fathers ate manna in the wilderness and they died. They ate miraculous bread just like all of you did yesterday, but it didn't feed their souls. Now, we know from elsewhere in the Bible that there were some back then who God fed with manna and who did receive eternal life, but not because of that bread, because of this bread. If all they saw in that manner was food for their stomachs, then that was all they got. But I am the living bread, says Jesus. The bread coming down from heaven now isn't more of that shadow bread your father's ate. It's not more of that shadow bread I fed you on yesterday, those little bread rolls. The bread that I will give for the life of the world is my own flesh, this very same ordinary human flesh that they so despise. But the word became flesh so that he could give his flesh. It's language of sacrifice, isn't it? He will offer himself up on behalf of the life of the world to give life to you and me It will take a dead Jesus. So the real feeding miracle of this book didn't happen when he fed the 5,000. The real feeding miracle happens at the cross. When the true bread of God not only descended from heaven, but descended all the way to hell. When his flesh was torn open like bread, when he fed you and me, by spending himself. Glenn Scrivener puts it beautifully. Never has a man claimed to be so mighty and so meek. And in the same breath, he gives life to the world. How? He gives himself for the world. He is consumed. We are nourished. He is poured out. We are filled. Well, that's how he gives his flesh. But what does it mean to eat his flesh? That's what the Jews begin to argue about, isn't it? How can this man give us flesh to eat? Now, they're not stupid. They know that he's not talking about literal cannibalism. But it's strange talk, isn't it? Unsettling talk. And once again, they are perfectly acting out the part of their forefathers. What happened when God rained down miraculous sweet bread from heaven all those years ago to sustain their bodies in the wilderness? Well, they looked at it and they said, what on earth is this stuff that God expects us to eat? They called it manna. It's a word that means, what is it? God's way of providing for them was very strange, but it was the only way. And they had to trust him day by day. How can this man give us his flesh to eat? What is this? Well, God's way of providing for our sin is very strange. We may not like it. We may want to do it our own way. But this is the only way. And we have to trust him day by day. So Jesus Doubles down, doesn't he? He says it twice more, getting even more graphic and shocking. He adds blood as well as flesh. He switches from the word eat to the word feed. It's an even more bestial word, the word used for animals chewing down on their food. It's meant to shock. Once again, there's a negative and there's a positive. Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, You are living corpses with no life in you. Hold my sacrifice in contempt. Refuse this food. And there's nothing else available for you. You must eat. And then verse 54, the wonderful positive, whoever you are, If you will feed on my flesh and drink my blood, you have eternal life right now. And I will raise you up on the last day and never let you go. How? Well, look at verse 55. It starts with a for a because. Because my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Now, just think yourself for a moment into their shoes. They have followed Jesus across the sea, hoping for more food, because they know a true meal when they eat one. Jesus, yesterday, that was the good stuff. That filled us up. That was true food. No, no, says Jesus, my flesh and blood given for you on the cross once and for all, that is more solid and real and life-giving than anything else you've ever tasted. So what does it mean then to eat his flesh and drink his blood? Let's be as clear as we can. It means getting our hands dirty in his death, staining them with his lifeblood, benefiting from his sacrifice. There is no way we can do that without it being shocking and offensive, is there? It is a primal, brutal reality. But the gospel is all about us surrendering to God's strange and beautiful way of salvation, swallowing our pride and swallowing God's grace. Eat this or you will starve. Die for me, Jesus, or I am lost. Have you cried that? If you have, then you fed. So don't stop feeding now. We feed on Jesus' flesh when we look at the cross and we say, that was for me. And by faith, we take that gift inside ourselves. We appropriate him for ourselves So anything that nourishes our trust in Jesus and his death will feed our souls. And it will be the truest food we'll ever eat. It will not fail to give you life. Augustine famously said this, believe and you have eaten. If you look carefully, you'll see that verse 54 is very similar indeed to verse 40. They're both saying the same thing, In different ways. Verse 40, whoever looks at Jesus and believes has eternal life and I'll raise him up on the last day. Well, what does that belief look like? Jesus says, faith can't just stay out there. Verse 54, whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day. You see the parallel? It's not a new condition. He's not saying, eat some communion wafer and you will magically go to heaven. It's helping us see what it means to trust Jesus. You have to get your hands dirty in his blood. Which leaves us with the obvious question, what does all of this have to do with a table that's laid right here? It is extraordinary the number of modern evangelicals who will read this chapter and tell you the answer is nothing at all. (laughs) Jesus isn't talking about communion. Why would you even think that? Look, he doesn't even mention wine. I think some of the silliest arguments I've ever come across are ones I've read this last week or so from our own wing of the church, wriggling like worms to try and get away from how millions of Christians down the centuries have applied these verses. And before I go any further, let me say they are absolutely right that nobody gets eternal life by eating a bit of bread and wine. That would contradict what he's said already. Whoever believes, he's in. Nothing more needed. If you mistake that little cube of bread for the true food, the true flesh, as many do still today, Well, you're making just the same mistake as the crowds. Secondly, those who insist that this has nothing at all to do with the Lord's Supper are absolutely right when they point out that the people here that day had never even heard of communion. So yes, what Jesus means here had to first make sense to them. But here's the thing, the Bible isn't a flat human text that just reports historical events. This is the Holy Spirit's book and the supper was not news to him. It's John through the Spirit who's the author of this chapter and John is a theologian in his own right. He wrote this book 50 odd years after Jesus died, one of the last books of the Bible, to a sophisticated audience, many of them steeped in Bible truths, many of whom would have spent those 50-odd years Sunday after Sunday gathering round the Lord's table. So you would have to try very hard not to believe that John's audience would have heard echoes of that table in this chapter. You would have to try very hard, I think, not to believe that John knew they would hear those echoes. If it's an accident then his writing is as sloppy as a bread and butter pudding. To me, it would be inconceivable. So either the supper was just not a big thing in the life of the early church, or John has put these echoes here on purpose. And they're everywhere. Listen, for example, to verse 23 last week. They came near to the place where they'd eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. What bell triggers in your mind the minute you hear those words? John is the only gospel which doesn't include the last supper at the end, but he's told us what that supper is all about right here. And he's told us what we should be trusting as our real food when we come to the table. This isn't a chapter about doing communion but it's about the Jesus that communion is giving us. And when John tells us to feed on him, he does so knowing the means we use to do that. The manner and the feeding of the 5,000 pointed forwards to his cross. This Lord's Supper points back to it. The signs are different, different sacraments for different ages but the one they signify is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So the lesson about communion for us is the same as the lesson about the manna for them. It's not the physical food that gives you life. What feeds us is the one that meal is holding out. Do we feed on Jesus by eating the bread? No, of course not any more than they fed on him by eating the manna. Bread is just bread. But do we feed on the real and true Jesus through eating the bread? Yes, praise God in his love and by faith we do. It's not the only way to feed on him, but it's one of the very best ways. Let's not be so... Quick to caveat this, that we missed the obvious application. That is the sacrament God has given us to seal this very promise. Calvin puts it like this, faith alone is the mouth, the stomach of the soul. So we receive Jesus by trusting him, not through some outward magical act of eating, But an outward magical act is not what we're meant to be doing around his table. And as we trust him and receive him, it is the real Jesus we receive. He's truly held out for us at this meal. In some mysterious way through his spirit, we encounter the real flesh and blood Jesus seated in heaven. And we feed on him the very same flesh and blood that was given for us. Whoever feeds on my flesh, says Jesus, and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. Do you see what he's saying? Believe in me, trust my death, make it yours and you are united to my very body. You share in my life, verse 57, just as I share in the Father's life. C.S. Lewis writes a deeply beautiful and profound introduction to Athanasius' famous work on the incarnation, and he describes Jesus as one who is so full of life that when he wished to die, he had to borrow death from others. He had to take on flesh and submit to our nails. And verse 57 is the flip side of that. It's the goal. It's all so that in Calvin's words, we could borrow that overflowing life from him. We're united to him and there is a great exchange. The start of this book said that Jesus came to bring us into the Father's light and life and love. And at last in chapter six, he's telling us how that happens. We participate in his death, his body, his life. Only through my flesh can you share the Father's life. Eat me and I will be yours always. And you will be mine always. He's offering an eternal, loving communion, the very name we give to its sacrament, communion with Jesus and his body. And we can enjoy that communion in his grace every minute of every day, simply by clinging to his cross. And we must, we need him every day. But right now there is food on the table that cost him dearly to prepare and a place saved for you. So let's not miss the chance to feast. Yes, a broken savior is strange food, but there is no other food for sinners. And we are far too needy, are we not, to be proud, picky eaters. So let these ancient words call us to his table once again, Take and eat this in remembrance that Christ died for you and feed on him in your heart with thanksgiving. Let's pray and give him thanks. Gracious heavenly father, thank you for the love in which you sent your son as bread from heaven to feed dying sinners. Thank you for the faithfulness in which he gave his true human flesh and blood on the cross, not just for sins out there, but for my sins. Thank you for the mercy by which you draw us by the heart to see his life given for us as true food for our hungry souls, Help us, we pray, to make it our own and to feed on Jesus today. Amen.